Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome, everyone. On today's podcast, we have Byron Reese, the author of a new book called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. Not only is Byron a author, he's also the CEO of publisher GigaOM, and he's also been a founder of several high-tech companies, but I won't steal his thunder by saying every great thing he's done. I want to hear from the man himself. So welcome onto the podcast, Byron. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Excellent. Well, I think I, I mentioned this before. One of the key things that we like to do in this podcast is get to the the origins of the person, in this case, the origins of the author. Where did you start your uh, career and what did you study in college? So I grew up on a farm in East Texas, a small farm. And when I left high school, I went to Rice University, which is in Houston, and I studied economics and business, a pretty, you know, kind of standard general thing to study. When I, when I graduated, I realized that it seemed to me that like every generation had, uh, there was something that was kind of it at that time, that, you know, the zeitgeist uh, of that time. And I knew I wanted to get into technology. I'd always been, you know, a tinker. I had built my first computer, blah, 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 all of that, you know, normal, normal kind of nerdy stuff that I did. But I knew I wanted to get into technology. So I um, ended up moving out to the Bay Area. And that was in the early 90s. And I worked for a technology company, and, and that that one was successful, and we, we, we sold it, and it was good. And I worked for another technology company, got an idea, and spun out a company and raised a round of financing for that. And uh, we sold that company, and then I started another one. And after seven hard years, we sold that one to a company, and it went public and, and so forth. So my... From my mother's perspective, I can't seem to hold a job. But from another view, it's kind of like the, the thing of our time is that we're in this industry that changes so rapidly. There's more opportunities that always come along. And, and I'm, I find that whole feeling intoxicating. That's great. I mean, that's a very illustrious career you know, with that many companies built, having been built and, and sold. And now you're running GigaOM. Do you want to share a little bit to, to those uh, listeners that may not be as familiar with GigaOM and what it is and, and what you do? Certainly. And, and I, I hasten to add that, you know, I've been fortunate that I've never had a, a failure in any of my companies, but they've always had hard times. I mean, they've always had these great periods of, of like, boy. I don't know how we're going to pull this one through. And so uh, they always end up, you know, I think, I think tenacity is, is a great trait in the startup world because uh, they're all very hard. And I don't feel like I've kind of, you know, figured it all out or anything. Every, everyone is a struggle. GigaOM is a technology research company. So if you're familiar with companies like Forrester or Gartner or those kinds of companies. And what we are is a company that tries to help enterprises, help businesses deal with all of the rapidly changing technology that happens. So you could imagine if you're a CIO of a large company and there's so many technologies and it all moves so quickly and it's like, how how does anybody keep up with all of that? And so what we have are a bunch of uh, analysts who are each subject matter experts in some area and we produce reports that 
try to orient somebody in this world we're in and say these kinds of solutions work here and these work there and, and so forth. And that's uh, GigaOM's mission. It's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a big, big challenge because you never, you never rest. You can never rest because everything, big new companies uh, I find almost every day that I've never even heard of. And I think, oh, how did I miss this? And, you know, you have to dive into that. And, and so it's a relentless, nonstop kind of effort to, to stay current on these technologies. On that note, one of the things that describes you on your LinkedIn page is the word futurist. Do you want to walk us through what that means in the context of a, a, a label? And, and how does a futurist really look at industries and how they change? Well, I... I mean, I guess, you know, it's a lower F future. So anybody who seriously thinks about about how the future might unfold is, to one degree or another, a futurist. I think what, what makes it into a discipline is to try to understand how change itself happens. What, how does technology drive changes? And, and to do that, you almost by definition have to be a historian as well. And so I think to, to be a futurist is to, is to, to be deliberate and reflective on how it is that we came from where we were in savagery and, and, you know, low tech and all of that to this world we are in today. And can you in fact look forward? The, The interesting thing about the future is it always progresses very neatly and linearly until it doesn't until something comes along so profound that it changes it. And that's why you hear all of these, you know, things about, one prediction in the 19th century was that is by some year in the future, you know, London would be unnavigable because of all the horse manure from the number of horses that would be needed to support the population. And that maybe would have happened, except you had the car and, and like that. So everything's a straight line kind of until one day it isn't. And, and I think the challenge of the futurist is to figure out when is it a line and, and when is it a hockey stick? So on that definition of line versus hockey stick, your background as having been CEO of various companies, a couple of which were media-centric, what is it that drew you to artificial intelligence specifically to futurize on? Well, that is a fantastic question. I mean, artificial intelligence is... First of all, a technology that people widely differ on its impact. And that's usually like a marker that something may be going on there. I mean, you know, there are people who think it's just it's oversold hype. It's just data mining, uh, big data renamed. It's just, it's just a tool for raising money better. And then there are people who say this is going to be the end of humanity as we know it. And philosophically, the idea that a machine can think, maybe, is a fantastically interesting one because we know we know that when you can teach a machine to do something you can you can usually double and double and double and double and double its ability to do that over time and if you could ever get it to 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 reason and then it could double and double and double and double well that could potentially be very interesting i mean humans only evolve i mean you know computers are able to evolve kind of at the speed of light they get better and humans evolve at like the speed of life. You know, it takes generations. And so if, if a machine can think, you know, a question famously posed by Alan Turing, if a machine can think, then that could potentially be a game changer. Likewise, 
I have a similar fascination for robots because, you know, that's a machine that can act, that can, that can move and can interact physically in the world. And I got to thinking, what would happen? What, what is a human in a world where machines can think better and act better than what, what are we? Like, what is uniquely human at that point? And so though, when you start asking those kinds of questions about a technology, th- that gets very interesting. I mean, you can take something like air conditioning and you can say, wow, air conditioning, think of the impact that had. It meant that in the evenings, people wouldn't, in warm areas, people don't go out on their front porch anymore. They, they close their house up and air condition it. And therefore, they have less interaction with their neighbors. And you could take some technology as simple as that and say, that had all these ripples through the world. I mean, the discovery of, of the new world ended the Italian Renaissance effectively because it, it, it changed the focus of Europe into a whole different direction. So when those sorts of things have those kind of ripples through history, you can only imagine what if a machine could think. Like, that's a big deal. I mean, I'll, I'll just say one more thing. 25 years ago, we launched, we made the first browser, the Mosaic browser. And, and if you had had an enormous amount of foresight and somebody said to you, in 25 years, 2 billion people are going to be using this, what do you think is going to happen? You, you, if you had had an enormous amount of foresight, you might have said, well, Yellow Pages are going to have it rough, and the newspapers are, and travel agents are, and stockbrokers are going to have a hard time. And you would have been right about everything. But nobody, nobody would have guessed there would be Google, or eBay, or Etsy, or Airbnb, or Amazon, or $25 trillion worth of wealth, a million new companies. And all that was was computers being able to talk to each other. Imagine if they could think. That is a big question. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I think that there's, I was just jokingly, I said Tinder in the background just because, you know, that's a social transformation, not even like a utility, but rather the social expectation of where certain things happen was brought about that. So you're right. There's a lot of things that, that, that are, and we're going to get into some of that in, as we review your book. But in order to do that, let's go through table of contents. So for those of you that don't have the book yet, because hopefully you will after we, this chat, the book is broken up into five parts, and in some ways, these parts are arguably chronological in, in their stage of development. The first one is the, um, the sort of, I would label as the historical. Uh, it's broken out into the fourth ages that we've had as, as humans, the first age being language and fire, the second one being agriculture and cities, the third one being writing and wheels, the fourth one being the one that we're currently in, which is robots and AI. And we're left with three questions, which are, what is the composition of the universe, what are we and what is yourself? And those are big, deep philosophical ones that will manifest themselves in the book a little bit later as we get into consciousness. Part two of the book is about narrow AI and robots. Arguably, I would say this is where we are today. And uh, Seedcamp, uh, as an investor in AI companies, has broadly invested in narrow AI through different companies. And this is largely, I think, uh, the cutting edge of AI as far as we understand it. Part three in the book covers artificial general intelligence, which is everything we've always wanted to see and which science fiction represents quite well. Everything from that movie AI where the the little robot boy uh, to Bicentennial Man with Robin Williams and and sort of the ethical implications of of that. Then part four of the book is computer consciousness, which is a huge debate because as uh, Byron articulates in the book, 
there's a whole debate on what is consciousness and there's a, a distinction between a monist and a dualist and and how they experience consciousness and how they define it and hopefully Byron will walk us through that in more detail and lastly the road from here is the, the future uh, as far as we can see it the futurist portion of the book I mean I guess parts three four and five are all futurist portions of the book but this one is where I think Byron you you go to the to the nth degree as possible with a, a few exceptions so maybe we can k- kick off with your commentary on why you've broken out the book into these five parts well you're right that they're chronologic and and you may have noticed each one opens with uh what you could call a parable and the parables themselves are chronologic as well the first one is about prometheus and it's about technology and about how the technology of fire changed us and all of the rest and and like you said that's where you you want to kind of lay the groundwork of the last hundred thousand years and that and that's why it's it's named something like um the road to here it's like how we got to where we are today and then i think there are three big questions that everywhere i go i hear one variant of them or another and the first one is around narrow ai and it's what is it that's like you said a real technology that's going to impact us what's it going to do with jobs what's it going to do in warfare what will it do with income all of these things that we are certainly going to deal with and then i get we're unfortunate with the term artificial intelligence because it can mean many different things. But one one is that it can be narrow AI. It can be, um, you know, a Nest thermometer that can adjust the temperature. But it can also be, you know, Commander Data off Star Trek. It can be C-3PO out of Star Wars. It can be something as versatile as a human. And, th- and unfortunately, those two things share the same name. But they're different technologies. So it has to kind of be drawn out on its own and to say, is this very different thing that shares the same name likely possible? What are its implications and whatnot? Interestingly, the pe- people who who believe we're going to build one vary immensely in when. They, some say as soon as five years and some say as long away as 500. And that's very telling that these people have such wide viewpoints on when we'll get it. And then to, to people who believe we're going to build one, the question then become, well, is it alive? And can it feel pain? And does it experience the world? And therefore, by that basis, does it have rights? And if it does, does that mean you can no longer order it to you know, plunge your toilet when it gets stopped up? Because all you've made is is a sentient being that you can control and is that possible and and why is it that we don't even know like this the most real thing the only real thing any of us know is our own consciousness and and we don't even know where that comes about and then finally i wanted to look the book starts a hundred thousand years ago i wanted to look a hundred thousand years out or something like that i wanted to start thinking about no matter how these other issues shake out, what is the long trajectory of the human race? Like, how did we get here? And what does that tell us about where we're going? Is, is human history a story of things getting better or things getting worse? And how do they get better or worse? And all of the rest. And so uh, that was a structure, before I wrote a single word, that was a structure that I, uh, I made, for the, made for the book. Yeah, and it makes sense. And maybe for the sake of, of not stealing the thunder of those that want to read it, we'll, we'll skip a few of those. Um, but before we skip and go straight into questions about the book itself, maybe you can 
explain who you want this book to be read by? Who is the customer? There are two customers for the book. The first is people who are in in the orbit of technology one way or the other, like it's their job or their day-to-day. And these questions are kind of things they deal with and think about constantly. And the the value of the book, the value prop of the book is that it never actually tells you what I think on any of these issues. Now, let me clarify that ever so slightly because the book isn't just another another guy with another opinion telling you what I think is going to happen. That isn't what I was writing it for at all. What I was really intrigued by is how people have so many different views on what's going to happen. Like with the jobs question, which I'm sure we'll come to, is it going to, are we going to have universal unemployment or are we going to have too few humans? Like these very different outcomes by all by very technical minded, informed people. And so what I've written or tried to write is a guidebook that says, I will, I will help you kind of get to the bottom of all of the assumptions underlying these opinions and do so in a way that you can take your own values, your own beliefs, and project them onto these issues and have a lot of clarity. So it's a book about how kind of to get organized and and understand why the, the debate exists about these things. And then the second group are people who, they just see headlines every now and then where Elon Musk says, hey, this is going to be, I hope we're not just the bootloaders for the AI, but it seems to be the case. Or there's very little chance we're going to survive this. And Stephen Hawking would say, you know, this may be the last invention we're permitted to make. And Bill Gates says he's worried about AI as well. And, And people who see these headlines, they're bound to think, wow, if if Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking are worried about this, then I guess I should be worried as well. And, and just on the basis of that, there's a lot of fear and angst about these technologies. The book actually isn't about technology. It's about how would you believe what that means for your um, beliefs about technology. And so I think after reading the book, you may still be afraid of AI. You may not. But you're, you will be able to say, aha, I know why Elon Musk or whoever believe, thinks what they think. It isn't that they know something I don't know. They don't have some special knowledge I don't have. It's that they believe something. They believe something very specific about what people are, what the brain is. They have a certain view of the world as completely mechanistic and all of these other things. You may agree with them. You may not. But I try to get it all of the assumptions that live underneath those headlines you see. And so why would Stephen Hawking say that? You know, why would he? Well, there are certain assumptions that you would have to believe to come to that same conclusion. Do you believe that's the main sort of reason that very intelligent people disagree on, on, you know, with respect to how optimistic they are about what artificial intelligence will do? I mean, you you mentioned Elon Musk, who's, who's pretty as it comes pessimistic about what AI might do, whereas, you know, there are others like Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook who's, who's pretty optimistic, comparatively speaking. I mean, do you think it's this different accounts of, of like, what we are that does it explaining the difference or? Absolutely. What we are, what, how the universe, the basic rules that govern the universe and what, what our, what our self is. What is that voice you hear in your head? Is that something? The three big questions. Exactly. I think the answer 
all these questions boil down to those three questions, which, as I point out, are very old old questions. They they go back as far as we have writing, and and presumably, therefore, they go back before that, way way beyond that. Yeah. So we'll we'll try to answer some of those questions, and maybe I can prod you. I know that you've you've mentioned in the past uh, that you're not necessarily expressing your specific views; you're just laying out the groundwork for people to have a debate. But maybe we can tease some of your opinions. Oh, I make I, I make no effort to hide them. I'm I I have beliefs about all those questions as well, and I'm happy I'm happy to share them. But the reason they don't have a place in the book is it doesn't matter doesn't whether matter. I think I'm a machine or not. Yeah. I mean, who cares whether I think I'm a machine? The reader already has an opinion on whether a human being is a machine. The, the fact I'm just one more person who says yay or nay, that doesn't have any bearing on the book. True. Although in all fairness, you are a highly qualified person to give an opinion. I don't know, but, but, but to your point, <laughs> but if your point, if Elon Musk says one thing and Mark Zuckerberg says another and they're diametrically opposed, they're both eminently qualified to have an opinion. And yeah. so these people who are eminently qualified to have opinions have no consensus. And that means something. That does mean something. So, you know, one thing that I would like to comment about the general spirit of your book is that I generally felt like the book was built from a position of optimism like even towards the very end of the book towards the hundred thousand years in the future there was always this underlying tone of we will be better off because of this entire revolution no matter how it plays out versus not and i think that maybe i can tease out of you that fact that you are telegraphing your view on what are we uh, effectively are we a benevolent race and a benevolent uh, existence um, or are we are we something that's more destructive in nature so I don't know if you would agree with that statement about the spirit of the book or or whether it absolutely. anything about you a- absolutely I I am unequivocally undeniably optimistic about the future for 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 a very simple reason which is you know th- there was a time in the past maybe 70,000 years ago that Humans were down to something like maybe a thousand breeding pairs. I mean, we were we were an endangered species, and we were one one epidemic, one famine, one away from total annihilation. And somehow, we got past that. And then a hundred thousand years ago, I'm sorry, ten thousand years ago, we got agriculture, and we learned to regularly produce food. But you know what? It took us 90% of our people for 10,000 years to make our food. But then we learned a trick. And that trick is technology. It's because te- what technology does is it multiplies what you are able to do. And and what we saw is that all of a sudden, uh, it didn't take 90%, 80%, 70 60 all the way down in the West to 2%. And 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 furthermore, we, we learned all of these other tricks we could do with technology. It's It's almost magic that what it does is it multiplies human ability. And and we know of no upward limit of what technology can do. And therefore, there's no end to how it can multiply what, what we can do. And so one has to ask the question, are we on balance going to use that for good or ill? And the answer obviously is for good. I know maybe obviously doesn't seem obvious if you caught you know the news this morning. But the simple fact of the matter is by any standard you choose today, life is better than it was in the past by that same standard anywhere in the world. 
And so we have an unending story of 10,000 years of human progress. And, and what has marred human humanity for the longest time is the concept of scarcity. There was never enough good stuff for everybody. Not enough food, not enough medicine, not enough education, not enough leisure. Not a, and, and technology lets us overcome scarcity. And so I think if you keep that at the core, that on balance, there have been more people who've wanted to build than destroy. We know that because we have been building for 10,000 years, that on balance, on net, we use technology for good, on net, always, without fail. I'd be interested to know the, the limits to your optimism there. I mean, is, it, is your optimism probabilistic? Do you assign, say, a 90% chance to, to the idea that, that technology and, and AI will be on balance good for, good for humans? Or do, or do you think, you know, it's pretty precarious, there's maybe a 10% chance, 20% chance that there might be you know, a, a point where if we fail to institute the right sort of arrangements, it, it might be bad? How would, you, how would you sort of describe your optimism in that sense? I find it hard to find historic cases where a technology came along that magnified what people were able to do, and that was bad for us. If, in fact, artificial intelligence makes everybody effectively smarter, it's really hard to spin that to a bad thing. If you think that's a bad thing, then one would advocate that maybe it would be great if tomorrow everybody woke up with 10 fewer IQ points. I can't construct that in my mind, that somehow, and what artificial intelligence is, is it's a collective memory of the planet. We take data from all these people's life experiences, and we learn from that data. And so to somehow say that's going to end up bad is to say ignorance is better than knowledge. It's to say that yeah, now that we have a collective memory of the planet, things are going to get worse. If you believe that, then it would be great if everybody forgot everything they know tomorrow. And so to me, the, the antithetical position that somehow making everybody smarter, remembering our mistakes better, all of these other things can somehow lead to a, a, res, a bad result, I think, is, I, I shall politely say, unproven in the extreme. You see, I believe that people are inherently, we have, we have evolved to be, by default, extremely cautious. Somebody said, it's much better to mistake a rock for a bear and to run away from it than it is to mistake a bear for a rock and just stand there. So we, we are a skittish people, and, and our skittishness has served us well. But what happens is it means, you know, anytime, anytime you're born with some, some bias, some cognitive bias, and we're born, I think, with one of fear, it, it does one well to be aware of that and to say, I know I'm born this way. I know that for 10,000 years, things have gotten better, but tomorrow they might just be worse. That's, we come by that honestly. It served us well in the past, but that doesn't mean it's not wrong. All right. Well, if, if we take that and just, and use that as a sort of veneer for the, for the rest of the conversation, Let's move into the narrow AI portion of, of your book. You know, I we, we can go into the, the whole variance of whether robots are going to take all of our jobs, some of our jobs, or none of our jobs, and we can kind of explore that. I know that you've covered that in other interviews. And one of the things that maybe we also should cover is how we how we train our AI systems in this narrow era, how we can inadvertently create issues for ourselves by having old data sets that represent social norms that have changed and therefore skew things in the wrong way and inherently create momentum 
for machines to believe and make wrong conclusions of us, even though uh, we as humans might be able to derive that had a contextual relevance at one point, but no, is no longer. Maybe you can just kick off that whole section with maybe commentary on that. So that is, that is certainly a real problem. You see, when, when you take a data set, and let's say the data is 100% accurate, and you come up with some conclusion about it, it, it takes on a halo of, well, that's just the facts. That's just how things are. That's just the truth. And in a sense, it is just the truth. But, but an AI is only going to come to conclusions based on, like you said, the data that it's trained on. You see, the interesting thing about artificial intelligence is it has a philosophical assumption behind it. And it is that the future is like the past. And for many things, that is true. A cat tomorrow looks like a cat today. And so you can take a bunch of cats from yesterday or a week ago or a month or a year, and you can train it, and it's going to be correct. A cell phone tomorrow doesn't look like a cell phone 10 years ago, though. And so if you took a bunch of photos of cell phones from 10 years ago, trained in AI, it's going to be fabulously wrong. And so that's, you, you hit the nail on the head. The onus is on us to do to make sure that whatever we are teaching it is is a is a is a truth that will be true tomorrow and that and that is and that is um, a, a real concern and, and there's no machine that can kind of sanity check that for you that you tell you tell the machine this is the truth now tell me tell me about tomorrow and but people have to get very good at that. Luckily, there's a lot of awareness around this issue. Like people who assemble large data sets are aware that data data has a best by date that varies widely. For how to play a game of chess, it's hundreds of years. That hasn't changed. If it's you know what what uh, a cell phone looks like, as I just said, it's a year. And so the the trick is to just be very cognizant of the data you're using. I find people who are in this industry are very reflective about these kinds of things. And th this, this gives me a lot of encouragement. And there have been times in the past where people associated with a new technology had a keen sense that it was something very serious, like the uh, Manhattan Project in the United States in World War II, or um, the computers that were built in the in the United Kingdom in that same period. They realized they were doing something of import, and they were very reflective about it even in that time. And I find that to be the case with people in AI today. I think that, generally speaking, a lot of the companies that we have invested in this sector and in, in sort of this stage, effectively narrow-based AI, as you said, are going through and thinking through it. But what's interesting is that I've noticed that there is a limit to what we can teach as metadata to data for machine learning algorithms to, to learn and evolve by themselves. So the age-old argument is that you can't build an artificial general intelligence. You have to grow it. You have to uh, nurture it. And, and it, it develops over time. And part of the challenge of nurturing or growing something is knowing what what pieces of input to give it. Now, if you use children as the best approximation of what we do, there's a lot of built-in features, including curiosity and a desire to sort of self-preserve and all these things that then enable the, the, the acquisition of metadata, which then justifies and rewrites existing data as either valid or invalid, to use your cell phone example. How do you see us being able to tackle that when we're inherently flawed in our ability to add metadata to existing data 
Are we going to effectively never be able to make it to artificial general intelligence because our inability to add that additional color to data so that it isn't effectively a very tarnished and limited uh, utility? Well, yes, it could very easily be the case. And by the way, that's a an extremely minority view among people in AI. I would just say that up front. I, I'm not representing a majority of uh, people in AI, but I think that could very well be the case. And let me just dive into that a little bit about how people know what we know. How is it that we are generally intelligent, have general intelligence? If I ask, you know, does, does it hurt your thumb when you hit it with a hammer? You would say yes. And then I would say, have you ever done it? Yes. And then I would say, well, when? And you likely can't remember. And so you're right. We have data that we take somehow a learning from that data and we store it and we don't know how we store it. There's no, there's no place in your brain, which is hitting your thumb with a hammer hurts. And that if I somehow could cut that out, you would no longer know that it doesn't exist. We don't know how we do that. Then we do something really clever. We know how to take data we know in one area and apply it to another area. So I could draw a picture of a completely made up alien that, you know, is weird beyond imagination. And I could show that picture to you. And then I could give you a bunch of photographs and say, find that alien in these. And if the alien's upside down or underwater or covered in peanut butter or half behind a tree or whatever, you're like, there it is, there it is, there it is, there it is. We don't know how we do that. We don't know how computers, so we don't know how to make computers do it. And then if you think about it, if I were to ask you, imagine a trout swimming in a river and imagine uh, the same trout in a jar of formaldehyde and in a laboratory. Are, do they weigh the same? You would say, yeah. Do they smell the same? Um, no. Are they the same color? Uh, probably not. Are they the same temperature? Definitely not. And like, even though you have no experience with any of that, you instinctively know how to apply it. These are things that people do very naturally, and we don't know how to make machines do them. If you were to think of a question to ask a computer like, Dr. Smith is having lunch at his favorite restaurant when he receives a phone call. Looking worried, he runs out the door, neglecting to pay his bill. Are the owners liable to call the police? You would say, a human would say no. Uh, clearly, he's a, he's a doctor. He, he, it's his favorite restaurant. He must eat there a lot. He must have gotten an emergency call. He ran out the door for getting to pay. We'll just ask him to pay the next time he comes in. The amount of knowledge you had to have just to answer that question is is complexity in the extreme. I, I can't even find a chatbot that can answer what's bigger, a nickel or the sun. And, and so to try to answer a question that requires this nuance and all of this inference and understanding and all of that, I, I, I do not believe we know how to build that now. That would be, I believe, a, a, a statement within the consensus. And um, I don't believe we know how to build it. And even if you were to say, well, if you had enough data and enough computers, you could figure that out. It may just literally be impossible. Like every instantiation of every possibility. We don't know how we do it. It's a great mystery. And, and it's even hotly debated of even if we knew how, to, how we do it, could we build a machine to do it? I don't even know that that's the case. And I think that's part of the thing that baffles me. And, and, and your book, I'm jumping a little bit around here in your book now. Um, you know, you do talk about uh, consciousness and you talk about sentience and and how we know what we know the who we are who we are you talk about the dot on pets and how they identify themselves as, as themselves 
And with any engineering problem, sometimes you can conceive of a solution before actually the method by which to get there is is accomplished, right? You can conceive the idea of flying. You just don't know what combination of anything that you're copying from birds or copying from leaves or whatever will function in getting to that goal, flying. The problem with this one is that, from an engineering point of view, is that this idea of having another human or another human-like entity that is not only have consciousness but has free will and, and, and is sentient as far as we can perceive it, is that there's a lot of things that you describe in your in your chapter on consciousness that we don't even know how to qualify, you know, like which are a huge catalyst in being able to create the metadata that structures data in a way that then gives the illusion and perception of of consciousness. How do you think if if maybe this is where you give me your personal do you think we'll ever be able to create uh, an answer to that engineering question such that there is technology that can build, be built around it because otherwise we might just be stuck on the formulation of the problem. So the the logic that says we can build it is very straightforward and, and seemingly ironclad. And the logic goes like this. If we figure out how a neuron works, we can build one, either physically build one or model it in a computer. And if you can model that neuron in a computer, then you learn how it talks to other neurons, and then you model 100 billion of them in the computer, and all of a sudden you have a human mind. So that that says we don't have to know it. We just have to understand the physics. So the position, uh, just for one more minute, says whatever a neuron does, it behaves the laws of physics. And if we can understand what those how the, those laws are interacting, then we will be able to build it. Case closed. There's no question at all that it cannot be done. So that's a viewpoint. And uh, I would say that's a majority viewpoint. The other viewpoint says, well, wait a minute. We have this, this brain that we don't understand. We have this brain that we don't understand uh, how it works. And then we have this mind. And a mind is a is a concept everybody uses and if you if you want a definition it's kind of everything your brain can do that an organ doesn't seem like it would be able to do you have a sense of humor your liver may not have a sense of humor you have emotions your stomach may not have emotions and so forth so somehow we have a mind that we don't know how it comes about and then to your point we have we are conscious and what that means is we experience the world i feel warmth a computer measures temperature. Those are very different things. And we, we not only don't know how it is that we are conscious, we don't even know how to ask the question in a scientific method, nor what the answer looks like. And so I, I'm, I would say my position, to be perfectly clear, is we have brains we don't understand, minds we don't understand, and consciousness we don't understand. And therefore, I am unconvinced that we can ever build something like this. And so I see no evidence that we can build it because the only example that we have is something that we, we don't understand. And I don't think you have to appeal to spiritualism or anything like that to come to that conclusion, although many people would disagree with me. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think one thing underlying the, the pessimistic view is this belief that you know, while we may not have the technology now or have an idea of how we're going to get there, 
the kinetics of, of an AI explosion, that's what I think Nick Bostrom, the philosopher, has called it, may be pretty rapid in, in, in the sense that you know, once there are material, there's material success in developing these AI models, that'll encourage researchers to, to sort of pile in and then therefore like bring in more people to, to produce those models. And then secondly, if there are advancements in, in self-improving AI models. So th- there's, a, there's a belief that it may be pretty quick that, that we get superintelligence that un- underlies this pessimism and, and, and the belief that we sort of have, have to act now. I mean, what, what, what would be your thoughts on that? Oh, well, I, 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 don't, I don't agree. I think that's, uh, is that a bear or a rock kind of thing? I mean, the minute, the only evidence we really have for that scenario are movies. And they, they're very compelling. And, you, and, and I'm not conspiratorial. And they're, they're entertaining. Like, and, but what happens is you see that enough and you do something that has a name. It's called reasoning from fictional evidence. And that's uh, what we do. We say, well, that could happen. And then you see it again, yeah, that, that, that could happen. That really could again and again and again. To put it in perspective, when, when I say we don't understand how the brain works, let me be really clear about that. Your, your brain has 100 billion neurons, you know, roughly the same number of stars in the Milky Way. And you might say, well, we don't understand it because there's so many. This is not true. There's a worm called the nematode worm. He's about as long as a hair is thick. And his brain has 302 neurons. These are the most successful creature on the planet, by the way. 70% of all animals are nematode worms. And 302 neurons, that's it. The number of, of pieces of cereal in a bowl of cereal. So for 20 years, a group of people in something called the Open Worm Project have been trying to model those 302 neurons in a computer to get it to display some of the complex behavior that a nematode worm does. And not only have they not done it, there's even a debate among them whether it will. it is even possible to do that. So that's the reality of the situation. We haven't even gotten to the mind. Again, how is it that we're creative? And we haven't even gotten to how is it that we experience the world? We're just talking about how does a brain work if it only has 302 neurons, a bunch of smart people, 20 years working on it, may not even be possible. So somehow to spin a narrative that, well, yeah, that all may be true, but what if? What if, like, there was a breakthrough, and then, and then it, it, it sped on itself, and sped up, and sped up, and then it got smarter, and then it got so smart, it had 100 IQ, then 1,000, then a million, then 100 million, and then it doesn't even see us anymore. That's as speculative as, as any other kind of scenario you, you want to come up with. It, it's so removed from the facts on the ground that it's, it's hard to – you can't rebut it because – it's not based on any evidence that you can rebuke. You know, the, the fun thing about chatting with you, Byron, is that um, the temptation is to just to sort of jump into all these theories and, and which ones are your favorite. So because I have the microphone, I will. Um, let me just jump into one then. Best science fiction theory that you like? Because, I mean, I think we've, we've touched on a few of these things, but best unified theory of everything, but... With, from science fiction that you feel like, you know what, this might just explain it all. Star Trek. Okay, which variant of it? Because there's not, they're not only... Oh, uh, I would take either... I'll take the okay. next generation. So what is that narrative? That so narrative is cute. we use technology... Uh, I do, no. Uh, we use technology to overcome scarcity. We, we have bumps all along the way. We are insatiably curious and we go out to explore the stars. As, as uh, Captain Picard told... Um, 
you know, the guy he thought out from the 20th century, he, he said, you know, that the, the challenge in, in our time is to better yourself, is to, is to discover who you are. And, and what we found, interestingly, with the Internet, and, and sure, you can list all the nefarious uses you want. What we found is the minute you make blogs, 100 million people want to tell you what they think. The minute you make YouTube, millions of people want to upload video. The minute you make iTunes, music flourishes. I think of my father's generation, they didn't write anything after they left college. You know, we wake up in the morning, we write all day long. You know, you send emails and constantly. And so what we have found is that it isn't that there were just a few people in like the Italian Renaissance. There were only a few people who wanted to paint or cared to paint. It was like everybody probably did. Only there wasn't enough of the good stuff. And so only either you had an extreme talent or extreme wealth and then you got to paint. Well, in the future, in like the Star Trek variant of it, uh, we've eliminated scarcity and through technology and everybody is empowered to every, every, every Dante to write their Inferno, every, every Mary Curie to discover radium and, and all of the rest. And so that, that vision of the future, you know, Gene Roddenberry said in the future, there will be no hunger and there will be no greed and all the children will know how to read that very end of the future. That's the one that's most consistent with the past. That's the one you can say, yeah, yeah, kind of somebody in, in the 1400s looking at our life today, that would look like Star Trek to them. These people like push a button and, yeah. the, and, the, and, the, and the temperature in the room gets cooler and they have leisure time. They have hobbies that would have seemed like science fiction. I think there's, there's a couple of things that I want to tackle with the Star Trek analogy to get us sort of warmed up on this. And, and I think uh, Kieran's biting here at the top to, to ask some of them. But I think the most obvious one to ask, if we use that as a, a parable of the future, if you will, is Data, Lieutenant Commander Data. So Lieutenant Commander Data is one of the characters in Star Trek Next Generation and is the closest attempt at artificial general intelligence. And yet he is crippled from fully comprehending the human condition because he's got an emotion chip that has to be turned off because when it's turned on, he goes nuts. And his brother um, is also nuts uh, because he's he, he was overly emotional and then he ends up being like representing every negative quality of humanity. So to some extent, not only have I just shown off about my <laughs> knowledge of the Star Trek. Well, Lore wasn't <laughs> over overly emotional. He got the chip that was meant for Data and it wasn't designed for him. That was his backstory. Oh, that's right. I stand corrected. That's all right. Um, but uh, maybe you can explore that. Is it is it in that future? Walk us through why you think uh, Gene uh, created that level of limitation uh, for for uh, data, and whether or not that's an implication of ultimately the limits of what we can expect from from robots. Well, obviously, the that that story is about. That, that whole setup is just not hard science, right? That whole setup is, like you said, it, it, it's embodying us. And it's the Pinocchio story of Data wanting to be a, a boy and all, all of the rest. So it's just storytelling as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's convenient that he has, quote, a positronic brain and you can remove part of his scalp and you just see all this light coursing through. But I don't, there's not, that's not something that, you know, science is behind like warp 10 or something the tricorder it's like that's science and you know uhura in the original series she had a bluetooth device in her ear all the time right and and all of that and yeah no but i, I guess with 
with the data with the data metaphor, I, I guess what I'm what I'm asking is the limitations that prevented data from being able to do some of the things that that humans do, um, and therefore ultimately come around full circle into being a fully independent, conscious, free willed, uh, sentient being were entirely because of some human elements he was lacking. And I guess the question, and you brought it up in your book, is whether or not we need those human elements to really, really, really drive that final conversion of a machine to some sort of entity that we can respect as an equivalent peer to us. Yeah, data's a tricky one because he felt he could not feel pain. So you would say he's not sentient. Uh, and, and to be clear, sentient means it's often misused to mean smart. That's sapient. Sentient means you can you can experience pain. He didn't, but um, as you said, at, at some point in the show, he he experienced emotional pain through that chip, and therefore he is sentient. And that, I mean, they had a whole episode about does data have a soul? And 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 you're right that I, I think there are things that humans do that it's hard to unless you start with the assumption everything in a human being is mechanistic and physics, and that you're a bag of chemicals with electrical impulses going through you if you start with that then everything has to be mechanical but if most people don't see themselves that way i i have found and so if there is something else some emergence or something else that's going on then yeah i believe that our intelligence that has to be wrapped up in our intelligence that being said you know when everybody i think has had this experience of you driving along and you kind of space and then you kind of like come to and you're like, holy cow, I'm three miles along. I don't remember driving there. And yet you, you, you behaved very intelligently. You, you navigated traffic and did all of that, but you weren't kind of conscious. You weren't experiencing the world, at least it, that much. That, that, that may be the limit of what we can do that a person during that three minutes when you're not, when you're kind of spaced, because that person also didn't write a new poem or do anything creative they just merely mechanically went through the motions of driving uh that may be the limit that may be that last little bit that makes us human so the the star trek view has has two pieces to it it has a technological optimism which i don't contest i i think i i'm aligned with you in agreeing with that but there's also a, an economic or, or a social optimism there and that's also about, you know, how that technology is owned, who owns, who owns the, the means of production, who, who owns the, who owns the replicators. I mean, when it comes to that, how, how precarious do you think the, the Star Trek universe is in the sense that if the replicators are only in the hand of a, of a, of a certain group of people, if they're, they're so expensive that only a few people own them or only a few people own the robots? I mean, we, it's no longer such an optimistic scenario that we have. I'd just be interested in, in hearing your views there. You know, you're right that the replicator is a little bit of a, of a convenient, I don't want to say it's a cheat, but it's a, it's a convenient way to get around scarcity. And, and, and they never really go into, well, how is it that, uh, you know, anybody could go to the library and replicate whatever they wanted? Like, how did they get that? I mean, I understand those arguments. You know, we, we have the ability of a person using technology to affect a lot of lives goes up. And that's why we have more billionaires. We have more self-made billionaires now. A higher percentage of billionaires are self-made now than ever before. You know, Google and, and Facebook together made 12 billionaires. The ability to make a billion dollars gets easier and easier, at least for some people, not me. 
because technology allows them to multiply and affect more lives. And you're right. So that does tend to make to make more super, super, super rich people. But but I, I think the income inequality debate is a little maybe needs a slightly bit of focus. It doesn't, to my mind, it doesn't matter all that much how many super rich people there are. The question is how many poor people are there? How many people have, you know, a a good life? How many people uh, can have medical care and can, can, you know, that's, if, if, if I could get everybody to that state, but I had to make a bunch of super rich people, it's like, absolutely. We'll take that. So it's, I think income inequality by itself is a distraction. I think the question is how do you raise the lot of everybody else? And what we know about technology is that it, it, it gets better over time and the prices fall over time. And that goes on ad infinitum. Who could have afforded an iPhone uh, 20 years ago? Like, it, you know, nobody it, who could have afford, afforded a cell phone 30 years ago, rich people, who could have afforded any of this stuff uh, all these years ago? Nobody but the very rich. And yet now, because because they get rich, all the prices of all that continue to fall, and everybody else benefits from it. I I don't deny there are all kinds of issues. You know, you have you have hepatitis C vaccine costs a hundred thousand dollars, and only and there are a lot of people who need it. And only a few people are going to. You know, there's all kinds of things like that. But I would. Just take some degree of comfort that if the his, if history has taught us anything, is that the price of anything related to technology falls over time. Um, who would have ever thought that you know you probably have a hundred computers in your house? You certainly have dozens of them, and who would have ever thought that from 1960? And yet here they are. Here we are in that future. So I don't. I think you almost have to be conspiratorial to say yeah. We're going to get these great new technologies, and only a few people are going to control them, and they're just going to use them to increase their wealth ad infinitum, and everybody else is just going to, just going to, you know, get the short end of the stick. Again, I think that's playing on on fear. I think that's playing on all of that because if you just say what what are the facts on the ground? Uh, are we better off than we were 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago? I think you can only say yes. Those are all very good points, and and I, I'm actually tempted to jump around a little bit in in your book and and maybe revisit a couple of ideas from the narrow AI section. But maybe what we can do is we can merge the question about robot proofing jobs with some of the stuff that you talk about in the last part, which is the road from here. One of the things that you mentioned before is this general idea that the world is getting better no matter what. You know these things that we just discussed about uh, iPhones and computers being more and more accessible as an example of it. You talk about the section of um, uh, murderous meerkats where, you know, even things like crime are things that is improving over time. And therefore, there's no real reason for us to fear the future. Um, But at the same time, I'm curious as to whether or not you think that there is a decline in certain elements of society which we aren't factoring into the data set of positivity. For example, do we feel that there is a decline in the social values that have developed to the current era? You know, in this sort of decline of social values, things like helping each other out, things like um, looking out for the collective versus the individual um, has come and gone. And we're not starting to see the manifestations of that through the through through some of the social media and, and how it represents itself. 
And I just wanted to get your ideas around that road from here and whether or not you would revisit them. If I, if somebody were to tell you and show you, um, some sociologists research regarding the decline of social values and how that might affect, uh, the kinds of jobs humans will have in the future versus robots. So I'm an optimist about the future. I'm clear about that, but I'm not every, everything is hard. It's like me talking about my companies. Everything's a struggle to get from here to there. I'm not going to try to spin every single thing. I think these technologies have real implications on people's privacy. And um, I mean, they're, and they're going to affect warfare and there are all these things that they're real problems. And we're really going to have to have to think about the idea that somehow these technologies make us less empathetic. I, I don't agree with um, and you can just you can just run through a list of examples like everybody kind of has a cause now everybody has some charity or thing that they support volunteerism is up gofundmes are uh people people can do something as simply as post a problem they have online and some stranger who'll get nothing in return is going to give them a big long answer people toil on a free encyclopedia and they toil in anonymity they get no credit whatsoever. We had the open source movement. Nobody saw that. Nobody said, yeah, programmers are going to work really hard and write really good stuff and give it away. Nobody said we're going to have creative commons where people are going to create things that are digital and they're going to give them away. Nobody said, oh, yeah, people are going to upload videos on YouTube and just let other people watch them for free. I mean, everywhere you look, technology empowers us and our benevolence. To, to, to take the other view is like a kid's these days shaking your cane, get off my grass kind of view that, you know, things things are bad now. They're getting worse, and which is what people have said for as long as as people have been, you know, re- reflecting on the age. Um, and so I, I don't kind of buy any of any of that in terms of specifically about jobs. Um, I th- I've tried hard to figure out what the half-life of a job is. like, And I think every 40 years, every 50 years, half of all the jobs vanish. That's just because what does technology do? It makes great new high-paying jobs like a geneticist, and it destroys low-paying, tedious jobs like, you know, order taker at a fast food restaurant. And what people sometimes say is, do you really think that order taker is going to become a geneticist? Like they're not trained for these new jobs. And the answer is, well, no. What will happen is a college professor will become a geneticist and a high school biology teacher gets the college job and a substitute teacher gets hired at the high school job all the way down. The question isn't, can that person who lost their job to automation get one of these great new jobs? The question is, can everybody on the planet do a job a little harder than the job they have today? And if the answer to that is yes, then what happens is every time technology creates great new jobs, everybody gets a promotion. Everybody down the line gets a promotion. And that is 250 years of why have we had in the West full employment? Because employment, other than during the Depression, has always been 5 to 10%. 5 to 10% for 250 years. Why have we had full employment for 250 years and rising wages? Like even when something like the assembly line came out or something like um, – we replaced all the animal power with steam. You never had bumps in unemployment because people just use those technologies to do more. So, yes, in 40 or 50 years, half the jobs are going to be gone. That's uh, just how the economy works. And 
the good news is, though, when I when I think back to my um, 12, K through 12 education, and I think if I knew the whole future, what would I have taken then that would help me today? And I can only think of one thing that I really just missed out on. Can you guess, by the way? No, computer education. No, because anything they taught me then would not be useful. Typing, typing. I should have taken typing. Who would have thought that that would be like the skill I need every day the most? But I, I didn't know that. So you have to say, wow, like everything you have, everything I do in my job today is not stuff I learned in school. What we all do now is you hear a new term or concept and you Google it and you click on that and you go to Wikipedia and you follow the link and then it's 3 a.m. in the morning and you wake up the next morning and, and you know something about it. And that's what every single one of us does what every single one of us has always done what every single one of us will continue to do and that's how the workforce morphs it isn't that we're facing this kind of cataclysmic disconnect between our education system and our and our job market it's that people are going to learn to do the new things as they learned to be web designers and they learned every other thing that they didn't teach learn in school we'd love to to dive into the into the economic arguments in a second but just to bring it back to your your point that that technology is always empowering um i'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate here and, and and mention you know someone we had on the podcast about a year ago tristan harris uh who's uh, the, the leader of an initiative called Time Well Spent. And um, his arguments were that the, the effects of technology can be nefarious. I mean, it's two days ago, uh, there was a New York Times article uh, doing uh, referring to a research paper on statistical analysis on anti-refugee violence in Germany. And, and one of the biggest correlating factors was, was time spent on social media. You know, suggesting that that it isn't always like beneficial or, or benign, benign for humans. Just to just play devil's advocate here, what, what what is your take on that? So, is your point that people that social media causes people to be violent, or is the interpretation people prone to violence also are prone to using social media? Maybe one variant of that, um, and Karen can provide his own, is that the good is getting gooder with technology and the bad's getting badder with technology. And you just hope that one doesn't detonate something that then is irreversible. Well, I'm, I will not uniformly defend every application of technology to every single situation. Uh, you know, I could rattle off all the nefarious uses of the internet, right? I mean, bilking people and, you know, you know them all. You don't need me to list it. The, the question isn't, uh, do any of those things happen? The question is, on balance, are more people using the Internet for good than evil? And we know the answer is good. It has to be. Because if if we were more evil than good as a, as a species, we never would have survived this way. We're highly communal. We've, we only survive because we, like, support each other. Like, I'll forget about all, you know, all the wars, granted, all of the problems, all the social strife, all of that. But in the end, you're left with the question of how did we make progress to begin with? And we made progress because there are more people who are working for progress than there are, uh, you know, who are, who are carrying torches and, and doing all the rest. It just is simple. It's, it's simple. I, I guess one of the things that I'm not qualified to make this statement, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway for the sake of the podcast. The humans have those attributes because they were inherently social animals and as a consequence, we're driven to survive and and forego 
um, being right at times because we value the social structure more than we do our own selves. And we value the success of the social structure more than ourselves. And, and there's always going to be deviations from that. But on average, it then uh, answers this and sort of shows and represents itself in the way that you have articulated it. And that's a theory that I have. But one of the things that if you accept that theory, well, you can let me know or not, but let's for, for, for the sake of the question, let's just assume that it's correct. Then how do you impart that onto a collection of artificial intelligences such that they mirror that? And as we start delegating more and more to those collective artificial intelligences, can we rely on them to have that same drive when they're no longer as socially dependent on each other the way that humans are for reproduction and, and defense and, and emotional validation? You could well be the, that could well be the case. Yes. Yes. I mean, we have to, we have to make sure that we um, program them to reflect an ethical code. And that's an inherently very hard thing to do because people aren't great at articulating them. And even when they articulate them, they're, they're full of all these provisos and exceptions and everybody's is different. But luckily there are certain broad concepts that almost everybody agrees with, you know, that, that life is better than death and that building is better than destroying. And I mean, there, there, there are these very high level concepts that we will need to take great pains in how we, how we build our AIs. And this is an old debate, even in AI. There was a man named Weizenbaum who saw, who, who made a chatbot in the 60s that was simple. You would say, I'm having a bad day today. And it would say, why are you having a bad day? I'm having a bad day because of my mother. Why are you having a bad day because of your mother? Back and forth. Super simple. Everybody knew it was a chatbot. And yet he saw people getting like emotionally attached to it. And he kind of turned on it. And he said, in the end, we never want computers. When a computer says, I understand, it's just a lie that there's no I and there's no understanding. And he came to believe we should never let computers do those kinds of things. They should never be like our emotional recipients of our emotions. We should never make them caregivers and all of these other things because in the end, they don't have any moral capacity at all. They have no empathy. They have faked empathy. They have simulated empathy. And so I, I think there is something to that, that there, there will just simply be Jobs we're not going to want them to do because in the end, they're going to require a, per a person, I think. You see, any job a, a computer could do, a robot could do, if you make a person do that job, there's a word for that. That's dehumanizing. If a machine can, in theory, do a job, if you make a person do it, that's dehumanizing. You're not using anything about them that makes them a human being. You're using them as a stand-in for a machine. And those are the jobs machines should do. But then there are all the other jobs that only people can do. And that's what I think people should do. And so I think there are going to be a lot of things like that that we're going to be uncomfortable with. And we, we still don't have any idea. Like when you're on a chatbot, do you need to – you need to be told it's a chatbot. Should robotic voices on the phone actually sound somewhat robotic so you know that's not a person? I mean, you think about R2-D2 and C-3PO and just think if, if their names were uh, Jack and Larry. Like, that's, that's this subtle difference in, in how we regard them that we don't, we don't know how we're going to do that. But you're entirely right. Machines, machines don't have any, any empathy, and they can only fake it and there are real 
questions if that's good or not. Right. Well, I mean, that's, that's a great, great way of looking at it. And, you know, one of the things that's been really great during this chat is, is understanding the origin of some of these views and, and how, you know, you end up at this positive outcome at the end of the day on average. And, you know, the book does a really good job of leaving the reader with that thought in mind, but arms them to have these kinds of engaging conversations. So, you know, thanks for sharing the book with us and thanks for you know providing your opinion on, on different elements of the book. However, you know, it'd be great to get some thoughts about things that you feel it, that inspired you or that you left out of the book. For example, um, which movies um, have most affected you in, in, in the vein of this particular book? You know, what, what is your thoughts on a TV show like Westworld and how that illustrates the development of uh, the mind of the artificial intelligence in the show? Maybe you can just share a little bit about how, how your, your thoughts have evolved. Certainly. And I would also like to add, I do think there's one way it can all go south. I think there is one pessimistic future. And, um, and I think that will come about if people stop believing in a better tomorrow. I think pessimism is what will get us all killed. The reason we've had optimism be so successful is there have been a number of people who get up and say, somebody needs to invent the blank. Somebody needs to find a cure for this. Somebody needs to do it. I, I will do it. And you have enough people who believe in one form or another in a better tomorrow. There's a mentality of like, don't polish brass on a sinking ship. And that's where you just say, well, what's the point? Why bother? Why bother? And if enough people said, why bother? Then we, we would, we're going to have to build that world. We're going to have to build that better world. And, and just like, like, with, like I said earlier with my companies, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. And everybody's got to work hard at it. And, and so it's not a gift. It's not free. Like we've clawed our way from savagery to civilization and, and we've got to keep clawing. But the, the interesting thing is finally, I think there is enough of the good stuff for everybody. And you're right. There are big distribution problems about that. And there are a lot of people uh, who aren't getting any of the good stuff. And that's, those are all real things we're going to have to, to deal with. When it comes to movies and TV, I have to see them all because everybody asks me about them on, on, on shows. So I have to go see them. And I used to loathe going to all the pessimistic movies and they are far and away dominated. In fact, you know, I even got to thinking, you know, Black Mirror, it's like I started like writing out a, story ideas for a show in my head I call White Mirror. It's like, who's telling those stories about how everything can be good in the future. And, 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 and that doesn't mean they're bereft of drama. It just means that it's a different setting for, to explore these, these issues. And so I used to be so annoyed at having to go to all of these movies. And so I would go to see some movie like Elysium and I'd be like, yeah, they're the 99%. Yeah. They're poor and beaten down. Yeah. They're covered in dirt. And uh, yeah, where do the 1% live? I bet they live in some place high up in the sky, pretty and clean. Oh, uh, yeah, there that is. And then, you know, you see Metropolis, the most expensive movie ever made, um, adjusted for inflation, you know, from almost a century ago. And yeah, they're the 99%. They're dirty. They're covered in dirt. Everybody forgets to bathe in the future. And I wonder where the, oh, the, yeah, the 1%. Yeah, they live in that tower up there. Oh, everything up there is white and clean. Wow, isn't that something? And so I would, I would, I would just be so like, 
I have to sit through these things. And then I read a quote by Frank Herbert. And he said, sometimes the purpose of science fiction is to keep the future from happening. And I said, okay, okay. These are cautionary tales. These are cautionary tales. These are warnings. And, and now I, I view them all like that. And so I think there are a lot of cautionary tales out there and very few things that we can, like Star Trek. You, you heard me answer that so quickly because uh, there aren't a lot of positive views about the, the future that are in science fiction. It's just not, doesn't seem to be as rich of a ground to tell stories. And even in that world, you had to have the Ferengi and you had to have the Klingons and you had to have the Romulans and, and, and so forth. So anyway, so I, I watched them all. And, you know, I enjoy Westworld like the next person. It's, but I also realize those are people playing those androids and that nobody can build a machine that does any of that. And, and so it's, it's fiction. It's not speculative in my mind. It's pure fiction. It just, it's, it's, it's what they are. And that doesn't mean they're any less enjoyable, but they're not. When I ask people on my uh, AI podcast, what science fiction influenced you, they all almost all say Star Trek. That, that was a show that inspired people. And, and uh, so I really gravitate towards things that inspire me and inspire me in a vision of a better tomorrow. You know, for, for me, if I had to answer that question, I would say The Matrix. And I think that it brings up a lot of philosophical questions um, and, and even questions about uh, reality. And it's, it's dystopian in some ways, I guess, but, but in some ways it's, it illustrates how we got there and how we can get out of it. And it has a utopian conclusion, I guess, because it's ultimately in the form of liberation. But it is, it is, an, it is an interesting point you make and, and actually make me reflect back on, on all the movies that I've seen. And I actually also it brings up another question, which is whether or not it's just representative of the times. Because if you look at art and if you look at literature over the years, in many ways, they are um, inspired by what's going on during the era, you know, and, and you can see bouts of, of optimism post some the resolution of some conflict, and then you can see the brewing of social upheaval, uh, which then ends up with some sort of uh, conflict, and, and you see that all across the, the decades, and it, it is interesting, and I guess that brings up a moral responsibility for us not to generate the most intense set of innovations around artificial intelligence in a point where maybe society is quite split at the moment, and we might inject unfortunate conclusions into uh, AI systems just because of the state of where we are in, in our geopolitical evolution. Yeah. I mean, I call my airline of choice, you know, once a week to do something and it asked me to state my member number, which unfortunately has an A an H and an eight in it and it never gets it right. So that's what people are trying to do with AI today is it's just like, just make, make a lot of really tedious stuff less tedious and, and and use caller ID, by the way. I always call from the same number, but that's a different subject. And so most of the problems that we try to solve with it are relatively mundane. And most of them are, you know, how do we spot disease and how do we, all of these, these very worthwhile things. It's not a scary technology. It's study the past, look for patterns in data, project into the future. That's That's it. And anything around that that tries to make it terrifying I think is sensationalism. And I think the responsibility is to tell the story about AI like that without, without the fear and, and emphasizing the positivity that of all the good that can come out of this technology. Hmm. 
What do you think we'll look upon 50 years from now and, and think, wow, how, why were we doing that? How, how did we get away with that? You know, the way that we look back today on slavery and think, why the hell did that happen? Well, um, I, I will give an answer to that, and it's not my own personal axe to grind. To be clear, I live in Austin, Texas. We have barbecue joints here uh, in abundance, but I believe that we will make, um, we will learn to grow meat in a laboratory, and it will be not only environmentally massively better, but it will taste better and be cheaper and healthier and everything. And and so I think we're going to grow all of our meat and maybe even all of our vegetables, by the way. Why do you need sunlight and rain and all of that? But but put that aside for a minute. I think we're going to grow all of our meat in the future. And I don't know if you grow it from a cell, if it's still veganism to eat it. Maybe it is. I don't, I don't know, like strictly speaking, whether it would be. But I think once the best steak you've ever had in your life is 99 cents, everybody's just going to have that. And then we'll look back at how we treat animals with a sense of collective shame. Of, of that because the question is can they feel in the united states up until the mid-90s veterinarians were taught animals couldn't feel pain and so they didn't anesthetize them they also operated on babies at the same time because they couldn't feel pain now i think people have they care like whether the chicken that they're eating was raised humanely and so i think that expansion of empathy to animals who now i think most people feel they do feel pain they do experience sadness or something that must feel like that and the fact that we we essentially uh, keep them in uh in abhorrent conditions and and all of that and again i'm not i'm not grinding my own axe here this isn't something that i don't think it's going to come with people like overnight changing i think what's going to happen is there'll be an alternative the alternative will be so much better that then everybody will use it and look back and think how in the world how in the world did we do that yeah, no, I agree with that. As a matter of fact, we've invested in a company that's trying to solve that problem. And um, I'm going to put, post it in the show notes just because they're in stealth right now. But by the time this podcast goes to, to, to print, if you will, uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk about them. But yes, I agree with you entirely. And we put our money behind it. So looking forward to, to that being one of the issues we solve. Now, another question is, what's something that you used to strongly believe in that now you think you were fundamentally misguided about? Oh, that happens all the time. That happens all the time. I mean, I wrote the book because I didn't write this book to start off by saying, I will write a book that doesn't really say what what I think. It, it'll just be this framework. I wrote a book to try to figure out what I think because I would hear all of these, all of these proclamations about these technologies and what they could do. And so I think I used to be way more in the AGI camp that like, this is something we're going to build and we're going to, we're going to have those things like on Westworld. This was before Westworld though. And I used to be much more in that until I wrote the book, which changed me. And, and I'm, 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 I, I, I can't say I disbelieve it. That would be the wrong way to say it, but I see no evidence for it. And so I think I used to um, buy that narrative a lot more and didn't, I didn't realize it was less, a technological opinion and more a metaphysical opinion. And then, so like working through all of that and just understanding all of the biases and all of the debate and all of that, it's very humbling because these are big issues. And, and what I wanted to do, like I said, is make a book that helps other people work through them. Yeah. Well, it is a great book. I've really enjoyed reading it. Thank you very much for writing it. 
congratulations. You're also the longest podcast we've ever recorded, but it's a subject that is very dear to me and one that is endlessly fascinating and we could continue on, but we want to be respectful of your time. So thank you for joining us and for your thoughts. Well, thank you. Any Anytime you want me back, I would love to continue the conversation. Well, until next time, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.